I have a collection of people that in a normal world, I'm not sure how it all end up together, but they're, they're a diverse uh, group of personalities, I'll say. And, and they're all passionate about different things, but they fit together in such an amazing way that when we hire somebody now, the skill set I don't focus on as much. I mean, they've got to have skills, no question about that, but I'm focusing on will they fit in our culture? Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Nice. Yes. Very yes. glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Oh, okay. So when you go to the zoo, and I know you take Jacob to the zoo, what's his favorite animal? Oh, what's his favorite animal? I, so most recently when we've taken him to the zoo, I, and it's, it's our, our, the local Lincoln Park Zoo that's really close to me in Chicago. The uh, lion exhibit is right up in front by the, by the entrance that we go in from, uh, from the east side, close to the, the lakeside. And sometimes I like can't even drag him out <laughs> unless I like just pick him up and, and run because he will, he will just gravitate right to, he just goes right up to the glass and he can probably stand there all day just watching the lions. And, uh, you know, we hear them roar every once in a while and he lets out like this very expressive, like, whoa sound. Uh, it's just, it's just cool to see. And I think that that probably makes it his favorite animal at this. Okay. Zoo. Okay. Yeah. What, what about you? Do you have a favorite animal? You know, I, I like a lot of them. Okay. <laughs> okay. I like the lions. I like uh, the elephants, the zebras, the giraffes, the, uh, I like the, the ones that you don't necessarily see in, uh, in other zoos that, you know, the real unique ones as well. So, uh, I know that's a really, probably a very, probably a bad answer, but yeah. What, <laughs> what about you? What's your favorite? I, 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 I am a huge fan of the big cats. So lions, mm. tigers, uh, pumas, you know, anything that's uh, a big cat in that, in that family. I love that. So, um, I totally understand where Jacob is coming from when just you two would probably have a great day together. At this exactly. <laughs> we would just stay at the lion, uh, exhibit all day. Um, yeah. but the reason I'm asking is because our guest today talks a lot about the connection between a visitor and an animal and making an emotional connection and also using that as a way to figure out how do we save the planet, which is a pretty big, um, you know, thought, a pretty, a pretty big um, uh, endeavor. So uh, Bill Moore is the president and CEO of Zoo Miami Foundation. And um, he talks a lot about conservation and obviously passion for the animals, passion for the business. Um, and he brings a lot of experience, a lot of attractions experience to that position. It's really fascinating to hear him talk about how those those positions are different, but also somewhat similar. 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear that perspective. And I know that we've we've covered it at, at least a few times from some individuals who have gone from the for-profit side to the nonprofit side or the other way around. So it's always it's always really fascinating to to kind of hear the differences in that. But um, you know, there's no short of there's no shortage of of passion in this interview that Bill has for the animals and for conservation and for uh, you know we talked about inspiring the next generations of people and uh, just the the ways that he has seen uh, changes in the industry and the way that people are managed and the way that uh, we get content to guests and uh, and just the way that that uh, they are storytellers at the zoo that that tell the story that ultimately inspires people to act to want to help save the world which you know like you said is is a big endeavor it's a tall order it is but it's also interesting to hear bill talk about the fact that it's really done through baby steps no pun intended with you know jacob but done in in small steps such as if someone goes and they hear about you know a certain product or a certain um part of the world and they they go to their grocery store and they see well that's endangered or we shouldn't be buying that you know it's those little steps that can help people really understand their impact on the larger world and you know, zoos, aquariums, cultural attractions that tell those kind of stories are really good at exposing people to those kind of um, stories where they may not get those stories um, in, in other places. So it's really fascinating to hear Bill talk about that. Yeah, and really tying it in with the experience that guests have uh, when they're visiting the zoo. He talks about a lot of outreach as well, kind of beyond the, uh, the gates of the zoo, uh, but also weaving it into the, the regular day visitors as well. And you've been to the zoo, haven't you? Been to Zoo many, Miami? Many times, many times. Yes. Me too, me too. I haven't actually been in, in several years, but uh, I have fond memories growing up and because uh, I would visit Miami multiple times a year. and There were many trips to the zoo. In fact, uh, I even know that my... My grandma has a brick paver uh, somewhere. I don't know where exactly it is, but there there is definitely a brick with her name on it somewhere uh, at Zoo Miami. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Well, I think next Actually, time I think I go- it was called Miami Metro Zoo back then. That's probably how old the brick paver is. <laughs> Rebranded to Zoo Miami. <laughs> I'm going to have to go look for that brick next time I'm there. But in the meantime, I say we get to this incredible conversation with Bill Moore. Let's do it. Bill Moore with the Zoo Miami Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Attraction Pros Podcast. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing great, Josh. It's uh, great to see Josh. Great to see you, Matt. And uh, thanks for having me to be part of this. This is a big day for me. (laughs) It's a big day for us, too. Can't wait to jump into this conversation. Bill, can you kind of start us off by telling us a little bit about your career in the industry? Because I know you've done a lot of different things. I have. I've been blessed to... uh, this industry has been very kind to me in a lot of ways. But so years ago, I, I, I was a child of a working class family with a sister. Uh, mom and dad did the best they could to take care of us, but you know we didn't have a lot of money. So I had to work at an early age and uh, we had this new thing opening in a little town I lived in called Austell, Georgia, just outside of uh, in the Cobb County, right across the river from Atlanta and uh, um, a little place called Six Flags. I didn't know about Six Flags over Texas at the time. Uh, it opened uh, when I was in high school. So as soon as I turned 16, uh, I wandered out to the park. Um, uh, interviewed actually with Aaron McCoy, who went on have a long career with Six Flags and State Fair of Texas. And um, he was HR uh, manager when I d- was interviewed there. And um, didn't really think I had much of a shot. I w- wasn't exactly an outgoing uh, person, probably never have been. 
but uh, they were they had a lot of college kids and college kids went back to school in August. And like everybody else these days, we know the drill. So I went in as a night shift or as a ride operator uh, on, a, on a car ride, like a modern car, which, you know, the same Disney still has the same aero manufactured cars today and stayed there with no intentions of doing anything. I, was, I think we first starting salaries a dollar an hour. So I was pretty happy about that. More money I ever knew what to do with. And I stayed there and then in the off season would do some off things when, when the park closed and, and kept coming back and was able to get rehired. And, you know, one thing led to another and uh, 30 some odd years later, uh, I was at the corporate office and had worked at uh, four of our parks, uh, Georgia, Texas, uh, Astroworld, uh, uh, well, five, California, Magic Mountain, and also in Great America and Chicago. So um, what a whirlwind career, crazy lifestyle moving and going to different places, a lot of travel. And, um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it was never a career that was intentional. It just started. I loved the work. Um, never thought about doing anything else. I got my degree in college at Georgia State University and was totally unrelated to what I was doing and uh, never looked back. Oh, fantastic. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing that. I, so kind of connecting that to today, can you give us uh, an overview of the Zoo Miami Foundation and, uh, and tell us about uh, what you do now? Yeah, so today, Josh, uh, Zoo Miami Foundation is, uh, is a primary support uh, organization for Zoo Miami. So the, the, in the vernacular of the zoo world, we're sort of a public-private partnership. So we're the nonprofit arm and the zoo is owned and operated by Miami-Dade County. So, um, you know, it's a public operated institution like a lot of parks are in counties around the country. There are some, best I can tell, about 35 uh, zoos that are part of this public-private partnership that are also accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And for those of you that maybe listeners who don't know, that is a, a primary accreditation agency that comes into zoos and make sure that we're, we're being held to the highest possible standards. And those standards are changing. And our foundation is part of that accreditation. So we do education here for uh, outreaches to schools. We do uh, conservation uh, talks. I just did a career day with our education department at a local school with even first graders and kindergartens to tell them about opportunities in the zoo world, but also to talk about the importance of conservation here in South Florida. Conservation is not a buzzword. It's not a something you think about. It is here. It is here right now in our backyard. And it's something we have to work on every day to stop where we've been and start to rebuild and, and uh, create a opportunity for those that are this uh, growing up today. Um, we manage membership here. Uh, so we have a whole department that takes care of members. So when you're a member of the zoo, you're actually a part of the foundation, but when you're a day visitor, for example, that's operated by the county. So our goal for both the zoo and the, and the county side is to make it seamless um, so that from a visitor standpoint, you don't really know what we do and you don't really know who operates what. You just know you come out and you have a great time. Um, and it's it's tricky because Josh, I think, and, and Matt, we wanna be entertaining, we want people to have fun, right? but we want them to leave with a, a sense of the importance of our animals. If we take care of our animals, we're probably taking care of the planet. If we take care of the planet, we're probably creating an environment for those that come after us. Because, you know, to be honest, people in my age category, and um, we've not done a great job for taking care of this planet. Um, and it's in peril. It really is. It's, it's, it's when people say, oh, I'll let the animals go to the wild. There's not a lot of wild left to go to. 
in India, the, the palm oil crisis has clear-cut forests where tigers and, and certain animals survive are no longer able to survive there. Um, some of the Sumatran tigers like we have here at the zoo, there are just a few hundred left in the world. And that's staggering when you think about the size of the planet. Um, the Everglades, which is not very far from where I'm sitting right now, is under peril because of uh, practices that we've endured in the state and not managing our water flow correctly, which now people see at places that are beautiful like Sanibel Island, which, which has the red tides now that we're battling back. We have to stop that in its tracks and we have to turn things around. And it doesn't have to be a battle of wills. It just has to take um, a collection of intended uh, actions to take consequences that are better than what we've done. It, it's harder. It's harder for developers. There's no question. It's harder for business. And things are more expensive. You know, we know that recycling things is, is a little bit more expensive, but plastic bottles, you know, we don't do that here at the zoo. We have aluminum cans, which can be reused a lot more efficiently than the plastic can. So it's creating that environment. And we, we tell that story every day because we're in the infant day, we're storytellers. Mm. Bill, can you talk a little bit about the, the relationship, I guess, between the entertainment and the conservation message um, and sort of how you do weave both of those into the story? Uh, great question, uh, Matt. I mean, I think part of it is that um, we know that people generally come because they want to have some fun, right? I, I go, if I go out to the zoo and most mornings, uh, you'll see a lot of strollers. You'll see sometimes it's just mom and a couple of children, maybe a mom and three or four of her friends. Sometimes it's just to walk around the zoo. Um, you know, it's a great place to exercise. It's outside. It's absolutely beautiful. Maybe in August, it's a little hot, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a great place to relax and, and sort of enjoy nature. You can see there, there are some 3,500 different animals that are here, over 400 some odd species. So you can get a glimpse of animals around the world. Um, you can educate your children. So for homeschooling, what a resource this place is. You can come in and study an animal, not in a book, not on the internet, but an actual species of that animal that's right in front of you. And you can watch the behavior of a gorilla, of a orangutan, of a sloth, of a sloth bear, um, of, a, of a koala. I mean, they're just things that you're not going to be able to see um, easily. And I think uh, passing that passion for taking care of animals in Showing that. So the conservation message comes in in two ways. One is sort of informal. Um, if you go to exhibits, you might run across some of our education staff or volunteers. You might do uh, a quick talk along with the keeper about a particular animal and ask questions about what do you feed him, what's his name, all the questions that people like to know because animals become personal about us. Um, you know, we all have dogs and some of us, you know, we become really big fans of our animals and they're, they're part of our family. Uh, it's the same way here for keepers. They're very passionate about the animals they care for. Um, so that's part of it is to explain, you know, that these aren't just animals that we just feed when we want to. These are animals that require care and feeding and, and vet care. I mean, we're building a brand new hospital here, an animal hospital for the, for the zoo that we've helped raise money for because we want the best possible care. The staff is amazing, but, but as healthcare has improved, so has animal healthcare practices. So it's not unusual to see visiting dentists and visiting surgeons here working alongside with the vet staff to take care of a particular animal. Um, there's just so many great stories about that. But also we have a, a building that we worked, uh, our foundation worked to raise money along with the zoo. So that partnership comes into play where we funded a, a, a new building that was already here, but we you know, gutted the inside, rechanged the outside 
and it's called the Conservation Action Center. So right in the middle of the floor, there's a big um, constrictor python that tells a story about what's going on in the Everglades. It's a whole huge long snake that kids can crawl through, but it allows then that story about the endangered, you know, a, a, an animal that should not be in the Everglades. It was somebody got one. It's small. These things grow huge. And so that's, that story's taken place right there in front. There's a lot to learn about why conservation is important. But also they get to learn um, that here at Zoo Miami, some of the uh, conservation staff, they capture those uh, females and bring them back here to the animal hospital and we implant them with a tracking device. So when they go back in the Everglades, we can follow them. And so these guys don't lay two eggs, they lay many, many, many eggs. So you can stop at the source and start to begin to find ways to reduce that population that's eradicating uh, some of the, uh, the animals that call the Everglades uh, home. So I'm curious about uh, the foundation's role in financially supporting Zoo Miami, and that being kind of one of the one of the biggest uh, missions of Zoo Miami Foundation. Can you share a little bit about kind of what that looks like in terms of you? You know, you mentioned kind of building the the new animal hospital and being able to uh, raise the funds for that. Uh, but as far as kind of the the overall. Uh, financial model and connecting that with the zoo as well between obviously admission and membership and, and fundraising and donation and then all the work that the foundation does as well. Yeah, Josh, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, you know, it's a stop by looking at the zoo itself, right? So the zoo itself is, is an attraction, as you pointed out, like other kinds of businesses, and it has all the typical revenue streams of, of an attraction. It has a, a front gate ticket. Um, you get some revenue from that. It has a food operation. It has a souvenir operation. It has special tours. All those are money-making uh, ventures, right? But they only get to roughly about half of the operating costs of a zoo. Zoos are incredibly expensive to operate. And it's a huge place, hundreds of acres, lots of animals, and it takes and, and it's open essentially all day, 365 days a year. So you don't get to just close up shop and go home. Um, and the animals have to be fed. And so it's a whole building just to do food and commissary because the, you know, the kitchen's working today to make food for tomorrow. Um, so that's happening. So when the, when the zoo decides they need to do a project, um, then we will work with them and decide, well, what, how much of that can we support? And sometimes the projects are huge. The new hospital is going to be in the tens of millions of dollars, you know, somewhere between probably 20 and $30 million dollars. So we did what we could. We're, we have about $7 million in that, but the county did the rest because the county has access to capital dollars as well. But we can help by adding additional resources. In the case of the Conservation Action Center, uh, we supported um, virtually all of the dollars for the inside renovation, but the county went in and made sure the air conditioning system's up to speed and lighting and all the infrastructure that, that is already there. Um, we worked with the county, for example, that we're gonna do some, uh, ribbon cutting and stuff later this month, but we have a, a, a sea turtle hospital here. That, so sea turtles that are injured, coal stun, maybe they've been bitten by an ant, a shark, maybe they've been hit by a, a boat that we can get here and try to rehab them, which is a tremendous need. If you were looked around uh, uh, LinkedIn today, there was a lot of stories about uh, turtles and, and trying to save them. And so the county was asked to put in a, a facility to help. And um, our board said, wow, that's a pretty cool thing. Let's figure out how to fund it. it. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but the county did the slab and did all the infrastructure stuff. And we bought the tanks and pumps and stuff 
then the county managed putting it in. So it's it's when you talk about partnership, um, the zoos the they're the hero in the room. They do the work. Our job is to support them and make sure the community knows um, the value that they bring to South Florida. So, Bill, one of the things I'm curious about, speaking about your your you know previous experience at Six Flags, now working for Zoo Miami Foundation, is how those positions are different, right? You know, going from a, a for-profit Six Flags organization or any, you know, for-profit organization and now working for the foundation where you're raising money and you're, you know, working with donors and working with the community. How different are those positions or maybe how similar are they? I'm just curious kind of from your perspective. That's a great question. I, th- I think, Matt, there's a lot of similarities, obviously. Um, you know, we all have to be uh, financially stable, um, so every for-profit business wants to be stable. I think in some cases, some of the bigger companies, you know, Disney and and uh, some of the others, SeaWorld, they they're public companies, so they have shareholders, and um, that's a difficult world to live in because shareholders, you know, at the end of the day, they want to see their return on investment grow and they want to see solid returns, and that's becoming more and more mainstream reporting now. Is which you know back when when we first started on the business wasn't that way. Um, so that's that's a big change. But I, I think nonprofit world, um, you know, certainly ours and so many others that do so many worthwhile causes, um, the passion becomes a measure that you go by. It's really having a passion for what you do. Um, if you if you work here at the foundation, you are um, extremely passionate about our mission. You're you're an animal lover, but I don't mean like a you like dogs and cats, animal lover. I mean, you really think that what we do matters and you really think that it's important that school children understand uh, the importance of, of uh, exotic animals. You wanna inspire a generation because you know becoming a vet, um, it's, you know, the, there's so many, if you go to the phone book and you open it up to look at your, your vet world, um, the dog and cat list is long, long. Well, go try to find a vet for a zebra uh, or a copy or a giraffe, they're not in the phone book. And there are just very few of them. Now, we're blessed in the state of Florida to have a university that does have a vet hospital that you can go. But I, I tell you, from talking to the vets here and others, and um, it's, it's, a, it's like being a doctor. It's a tough road. And these people don't make, uh, they're not driving a Mercedes to work, I can promise you. They're just trying to get by like everybody else with years and years and years to learn. Um, I, I, we, we joke sometimes, but when you see the vets at work, it's like MacGyver. You know, you, one minute you're working on a, a little toad or something or that's this big. And, and he has a, a, an internal intestinal issue and you got to get that fixed. They don't make tools for that. So these guys are down cutting and making things. And then all of a sudden you got to work at an at elephant scale. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's just both ends of the spectrum. And you don't know day to day what your day is going to be like. So um, the passion that everybody has here on the zoo side and the foundation side, uh, I suspect that neither side are here because we get paid so well. We're here because um, we have a, a love and appreciation for this, and we think that it matters. It really does matter. When you see a family come in for camp, which we operate and we'll start in a week or so, um, and you meet the moms outside and, and they come up and talk to you and go, well, it really, you've made my life a little tougher because when I go to the grocery store now, there's certain things I can't buy anymore because their son or daughter says, oh, you can't buy that. That product's not sustainable. You can't buy that because it has the wrong stuff. And we, we're changing a little bit of the time, right? Uh, the way people function. Um, when, you, when you meet a person who we have, a, we have a, a volunteer, totally volunteer, this will blow you away. 
These are young people that start about the 10th grade. It's called Conservation Teen Scientist. They volunteer to come out here and work all summer long for free, something I would have never done, <laughs> uh, to be honest. But they volunteer and they learn so much. And I've had so many parents come up to me and said they were so worried about their son or daughter because they were, you know, not that it's a bad thing, but they got so much into role playing and game playing online, which is very much a thing. Probably both of you guys do some of that when you're not working. But but when you when you're in that world, you can all of a sudden find yourself sitting on the couch playing games with friends around the world for six, eight hours. And all of a sudden you, you don't go anywhere. You don't have any friends. All your friends are out there are online friends, which are a little bit different than real life. And so somehow they inspire these kids to, and they volunteer. And all of a sudden they shift their career to wanting to go to school and get into the, the biology or some other applied science that they really want to do. And I've seen them go all the way through school, get graduate, go to FIU and get a scholarship. And when you meet them later in life, they will credit sometimes that they started here and they didn't know about this world and it changed what their career is going to be. It only takes one or two of those to understand that you have a mission in life to help expose this to as many people as you can. So you bring up a really good point there as far as just the, the way people are learning and the way people are, are occupying their time. And you talk about kind of the, the need to inspire people and you talk about the passion of people that are, that are coming and working for Zoo Miami or for the foundation. I And curious as far as what you've seen in changes in the ways that you're able to reach people to inspire them and to uh, to influence them to take action, whether it's, you know, not buying certain things at the grocery store because they're not sustainable or, or X, Y, Z, but really getting that message out there that I've got to imagine today is not the same as, as what it was previously, just by, by the way that, that people are now occupying their time and directing their attention. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's mind numbing sometimes, Josh, the way that, you know, I, I used to dabble a little bit in marketing. I'm never, I'm not a marketing person per se, but when we ran theme parks, you had to know quite a bit about marketing. That was what drove the gate. Um, uh, small parks, big parks. I mean, marketing was a huge part of our business and we had corporate marketing people, we had agencies. And today that's that's shifted a lot. I mean, you know, you, you don't have three TV stations or a few networks. You have thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. You guys are all now a channel. You have a way to get your word out. So we have to figure out which of those that we use and the, and the zoos no different. We have to find all those venues. So you have to have agencies. We have creative agencies. We have a social media agency that, you know, years ago you would have never had just to try to keep up with where do you put your message um, and, and try to get it shared and repeated and all that's uh, uh, I'm sure you guys see it in your work and it's harder than it's ever been, but it also allows us to reach globally, which we couldn't do before. Uh, years ago, you would advertise maybe locally, and maybe in summer you might, if, when we're in Texas, maybe we would advertise down to San Antonio and try to get some of those folks or Louisiana. Today, you can do that, or you can go to any country in the world that you want to go to, um, which is an amazing uh, ability when you think about it. And you can look at this video. I mean, we're watching some pretty clear video pictures here uh, on a computer. Um, and that wasn't always the case. We didn't all have cameras. We didn't all have phones. So, I, so you have to embrace that technology, I think. And you have to find people that are um, very in tune with that, which means they're probably 
maybe not in high school yet. I mean, some of these younger people, I don't know much about my phone, but I know there's 50 people in this room, including volunteers that can I can take it to, and they'll oh, that's easy. Here, you do this thing, and you're like, oh, okay, thanks. Um, that That's a shift, and it's a huge shift, but it's also harder, I think, because you still have a limited budget, and you've got to figure out where to get the return. Um, I, I don't know. I get probably 20 emails a day from some online something that's offering me a new way to do something uh, to reach the audience or to get video or to create a new website. So you just have to pick and choose and make sure you're watching the return. You still have to get a return for your dollars that you're spending. Well, and I think what this kind of brings to mind for me is thinking about not just from the marketing standpoint, but also the operational. So thinking about, you know, somebody coming to the zoo and, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a very low tech experience, right? You're walking around the zoo. Maybe you're taking one of those little Surrey bikes, right? right? But you're going around the zoo and you're seeing animals, you know, in a, in a habitat, it's open air, fresh air, the whole thing. And a minute ago, you talked about gaming where you could sit on the couch for six to eight hours. How do you balance, or maybe how do you navigate marketing to people when you have such a vastly different experience than maybe what they're used to, even, you know, over the last couple of years where people have been locked down and, you know, been doing everything online and now saying, Hey, let's get outside, you know, and, and how do you kind of navigate that different competition? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it is harder and towards technology gets better. Um, real life is real life, but technology is closing that gap, if you will. Um, I think one way to do that is, is um, and, and there are discussions underway and uh, there are products out there. I think we have to find the right product and it'll be different for different zoos, but the blending of technology and, and real life at the same time is starting to be a bigger discussion, I think, in the zoo community. Uh, it may be the aquarium community does it before the zoo community does, but there is a way to take the sort of virtual reality concept and blend that with real. So if you were to see an elephant on exhibit here, and although our exhibits are not, um, you know, you don't see cages, you see a big plot of land and elephants are walking around and going where they want to go. But what would that look like if you saw that same elephant, but saw it on a, an African plane that put you there and, and it with every with birds flying around that were native to Africa and everything about what your experience was was uh, blended so because while you can see a, a nice elephant and you know, great videos on Disney and other places of these animals the reality is there's they don't smell they don't sound quite the same they don't look the same um, they don't because their photography is so beautiful they don't they don't do things that real elephants do. Um, so when you start to see the real product, which I think there's just no replacement, like like I'm a pilot, right? I, I know what it's like to fly a plane. I'm a flight instructor. I love all that stuff. Flight simulator is a wonderful product and a lot of people do it. It's not the same. Uh, I don't even care if you turn your volume all the way up. It's not near as noisy and loud and disruptive as a, a single engine airplane engine is. It's the bumps in the air are never going to be the same. You can turn up your turbulence and you can bounce it around your screen, but you're sitting there perfectly calm. If you're in the airplane having that same experience, it's not the same. So blending those two together where we can overlay some of the zoo experience, I think enhances the experience and makes it a better, but it also brings into Josh's point, it allows us to bring in the messaging. Like in one corner, if you said, look, this you know, what's the difference between an African and Asian elephant? You know, you can start to talk about that so that the children and parents and adults can all learn 
a little bit more about their planet than they knew before. Mm. Uh, so, you know, what's funny is this reminds me, I, so I have a toddler, which I, I know I've brought up a couple of times on, <laughs> on the podcast, as, as Matt can tell you, and, you know, he's got all these books and so many of them have zoo animals in them. And we right. look in them or, we're, you know, try to do like animal sounds and things like that. And, you know, we also have Disney Plus, which has a, a show on Animal Kingdom. There's all the National Geographic stuff on it. So we turn that on and he sees them moving on the screen and, you know, he, he, you know, he gets excited. He gets, you know, right. expressive with that. Uh, and we have a membership at our local zoo. So we, we kind of, I, my wife and I, we've had the discussion of saying like, we want to make sure we're never going to say like, why would we go to the zoo when we could just turn this on and he'll get, he'll get yeah. just as excited as, uh, uh, you know, as, as a toddler, like not knowing the difference between seeing it in right. real life and seeing it on a screen. So uh, that importance of a real life, like you said, like being able to, to kind of smell the elephant when you're at the exhibit um, and, and that similar analogy to, you know, to, to being on the plane, um, you know, is, is important to make sure that, that the technology helps to support the real life experience and even, and even amplify it rather than, uh, rather than to replace it, but be a, a contributing complement to it, I would say. Um, I think that's good, Josh. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about it, um, if you saw a tiger on Disney plus and I have it too, and they do great phot photography, I love seeing all that stuff and watching all that, but you can watch a tiger and not feel any power of the animal. I mean, it looks big. It looks, you can see it hunt and you go, wow, I wouldn't want to be caught alone in a dark alley with that. When you see it here and you watch that cat and that cat starts looking at you, you're like, oh man, is that, can that cat jump, you know, two feet further than this moat is? Because if it can, I'd like to be somewhere else. And when you've walked past the lion exhibit and the lions tracked you as you walk past, and particularly the female lions, I noticed to me anyway, tend to watch more than the males. The males are kind of lazy, but the females are watching because they're the hunters. And you're like, okay, well, you guys stay over there and I'll stay over here. That's a different emotional, visceral experience than watching it on the Disney Channel. So, But it's important, I think, for, for toddlers and for adults to have both because I'm probably not going to go to Australia anytime soon. I'm sure I would have to take a, you know, a big credit card chunk to get there, but I can walk out of my office and be sitting in front of a koala in about 15 minutes. And, um, and, and you know, they're not the most exciting animal that you've ever seen because they sleep so much, but it's still, you can see it and you can see a tree kangaroo and most of us may not make it to Africa. So the zoo helps close a gap and give us knowledge about a planet because the globe is shrinking in terms of our connectivity. Um, you know, look at the news today, monkeypox. Well, we ever heard about that because it was in one particular place in Africa and never went anywhere. But now thanks to travel, good things and bad things are, are going across borders quicker and quicker. Um, you know, years ago, we would have to look up where these countries were. Now, you know, you know somebody who's been there, you know, I don't know where that is. And I think that's a good thing because it makes us appreciate other cultures and other people and other animals. And, and if we can appreciate each other better, that's probably a good thing for all of us. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, and Bill, you, you mentioned the, the word visceral, and um, it reminds me of a time at Zoo Miami um, when I was working with the, the operational side of the zoo, and they said, um, you know, you've got a little extra time. Do you want to go see something? And I said, I love the big cats. I said, you know, take me to see the tigers or something. So they actually took me into the kind of the back part of the enclosure. And of yeah. course, they first, the first thing they tell you is how to get out. 
right? Yeah. Just in case something goes wrong. This is this is your escape route, which I was appreciative of. Um, but the the visceral experience I had was one of those tigers roared, right? And I was like five feet from it, and I shook. I mean, like the vibrations of the of the sound literally shook my body, and I'm just like, this is really cool and kind of scary if there wasn't this yeah. big concrete wall, you know, between us. So I definitely understand the importance of experiencing that and and having those visceral visceral feelings because that's what creates kind of an emotional connection. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the zoo tries to create those emotional connections even beyond someone standing and looking at the animals or you know you know having that experience like what is the zoo doing to help bring people in to the story not just telling them the story does that make sense it does i think there's there's uh you know so both the foundation of the zoo were always active and we have ron mcgill and you certainly met ron when you've been here right ron's probably one of the better best storytellers i've ever had the privilege of working around um he's got a commanding presence he's you know he always tells me he's you know the world's tallest cuban or whatever but he's six six or something and he's this giant man he's been doing this a long time so He's our very own sort of Jim Fowler, if you will, locally in South Florida. He's well-known. I've traveled with Ron a little bit. Which you don't go anywhere that people don't know him. And he's a great storyteller. So he's a Nikon ambassador. So he takes photography classes. Um, so every way that we can think of a way to connect the dots, uh, having school groups come out that can do that, homeschooling that can happen here on the ground so we can help um, families that want to homeschool their kids create a curriculum uh, making sure that we follow whatever the state's curriculum is in, in any of the education work that we do um, so that there are opportunities there. But then the zoo staff, I mean, some of the best storytellers. So I, I have the privilege from time to time to take a donor, a potential donor out on a tour. And, and like you, we go do some things in front of the house and we do some things behind. But but the best storyteller of anyone here are, are the animal keepers because they live with these animals every day. And you know, I remember when I was first here, I went and visited um, up in the Amazon area, and we have a lot of uh, snakes up there. And some of them are very normal snakes, and some of them you're glad that there are three different locks on the back of their cage because they're just extraordinarily um, uh, dangerous. And, and there was a gentleman up there, was a keeper at the time, and I chatted with him, and I said, so, and I was totally naive. I've just been here a little bit. And I said, well, so is your goal to go from snakes into, into the hoofstock and hoofstock to giraffes and then ultimately you get to elephants is that really the goal and he goes no i like snakes i go but they're just here i mean they don't talk to you they don't wag their tail they don't do anything but he was so he was you know so passionate about herpetology that he's just that's what he wanted to do was just take care of those snakes and i'm it, it struck me as sort of wow that's unusual who grows up and says i want to take care of snakes as a career but around the zoo, different uh, keepers are so passionate about their particular animal. They know a lot. Uh, it's, a, it's a miserable kind of world some days. It's hot. I mean, when you're not, uh, it's like owning a really big dog, except in the case of some of them, uh, you need a bigger shovel and a bigger wheelbarrow to clean up the pen when they get done, right? So it's a big job every day. You've got to feed them. You've got to make sure they got water but you've also got to be so mindful. And they are the ones, the first round of people that notice, hey, you know, that, that one animal doesn't look like he's behaving like he or she has always done. 
let me get a hold of the vet and have them come take a look. So well before any really obvious signs, they can notice subtle behavior changes. Uh, to me, when they talk about their passion for these to a donor, I don't have to say very much. If, if somebody's going to be interested in supporting us for whatever we're doing, they get it. Um, and, and it's the same way when we go uh, to the county commission to make a presentation or go up to Tallahassee to, to like every other zoo in Florida, those of us that are accredited, you know, we, we might need special support or help with a cultural grant. But you, you take an animal up there, uh, we, we've taken uh, sloths into the state capitol and walked into legislator's office. It's a wonderful thing. Um, you, there's all these people waiting to see the legislators. We go right to the head of the class. Um, oh, you guys all wait a minute. Come on in. Be glad to talk to you for a minute. And because and, they want to talk to the sloth. But while they're talking to the sloth, you get to tell your story about what you might need support on. And so we've made friends and legislator. We've made friends with, with I have a membership, this amazing story. Um, she's an employee. She knows members by their name. We have a, a, an unnamed uh, famous basketball player locally that everybody would know if I said their name. And she noticed that he and his wife came out. But when he came out, it was a difficult visit, right? Because he's well-known and people tend to, and they didn't make it all the way, but they made it in the playoffs. So they were pretty, uh, pretty well-known for towards the end there. And she called him up and said, look, I feel badly for you when you're a member um, you don't get the right experience. So I'll work with you. You let me know when you want to come out and we'll give a, a, a we'll help you with your tour so you can have the best possible time. Um, and we weren't there to, you know, this person probably has lots of resources, but we were there to make sure that he or she had a good experience as a member. And, and it made meant something to him and it made something because we treated him not like a basketball star, but like somebody who liked to come to the zoo with their family. So just like Josh takes his toddler out, it was the same way with this person. But so everything is like a one-off experience and you just have to do everything you can, which goes back to what you guys are always talking about is, that, is the, the employee side of this whole thing is huge. Um, for the foundation, it's different. I don't, I don't work on the hiring of the, of the county side. It's a different process. But for us, it's not just hiring the best fundraiser. You've got to hire the best fundraiser, but also they've got to be passionate about it. This is a very different job than raising money for the Cancer Society or for education or something. Um, it's competitive, but we're in a niche market of a very small place where where we still need you know people to be generous and support us when they can. But it's a it, you've got to have people who really um, you know drink the Kool Aid and really get it. Yeah. And kind of keeping on that track with the employee side, we'd love to talk about changes that you have seen uh, just over the course of, of your career. There was something you said before we started recording, and that was how we managed before is not how we manage today. So I'd, I'd love it if you could expand on that and, and share just what you've seen in, in changes and trends in, uh, in just the, the overall, I would say, labor and kind of an employment aspect of the business. Uh, Josh, yeah, I think, you know, to me, it, it, it's fascinating to watch. It really is. Um, and every day is a learning process. But if you go back a few years or maybe even a decade or two, uh, we all, I did, my career, I worked really hard to get to that next thing. You know, you were maybe a director and then you wanted to be a, a vice president and you wanted to be a park president or whatever. Um, then you wanted to go to corporate. And so you, 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 there was, it was very competitive. And those of us that made it through that process, um, 
you really had to work. So when when Six Flags and, and, and my time there was over, I had to go look for a job and I hadn't done that. Never really thought I'd have to. So it, it, it but it, it was competitive. I, I felt like I really had to be a, a better person. Today, the conversation is a little backwards um, and maybe it's backwards in a good way. And the employee goes, well, why should I work for you? And so all of a sudden, instead of you asking the questions, you're answering a lot more questions, right? Um, and, and part of what we're trying to find as an, as an employer is I, I have, Matt knows many of our staff, probably a couple that have knew since you've been through here last, but um, I have a collection of people that in a normal world, I'm not sure how it all end up together, but they're, they're a diverse uh, group of personalities, I'll say. And, and they're all passionate about different things, but they fit together in such an amazing way that when we hire somebody now, the skill set I don't focus on as much. I mean, they've got to have skills, no question about that, but I'm focusing on will they fit in our culture? Um, and then once they're here, I have to spend uh, a lot of time both with the, with the, the staff that, that I work with um, to take care of them because I don't want them to leave because it took an awful long time to find them and it takes a long time to train them and I want them to stay as long as we, I don't have false expectations that they're gonna retire from here or stay here 20, 30 years, but I want them to stay a long time. Um, and so I just described the org chart. You know, we see the typical org chart, my name's at the top and the board and then all the people. It really should look like this, um, where I'm down here and they're all up here because they do the work. Uh, they're the one answering the phone. They're the one talking to the visitor. They're the one taking camp reservations. They're the one out in the field. They're the one with the donors and the tours and the members. Um, they're, they're going to schools with our van and taking the animals out and making, inspiring the young people um, what do they need to get through their day and what can I do to provide it for them? And while, you know, we have limitations like every business, I want to make sure that they have the tools to do their job. And then, you know, along the way, if somebody looks like they're having a rough day, um, which happens in life and in business, you know, I try to pay attention and take them aside and go, Hey, you're doing okay. And a new employee, I'll go by many, many times um, because I, I'm thankful and grateful that I have a really team that does a good work. So the day-to-day the -day for me is just uh, making sure that people have what they need and, and then making sure the board feels like they're they're getting what they need to, to help us guide our, our foundation. But with a new employee, I want to make sure they feel welcome. You know, is somebody giving them what they need every day? Because, you know, you get them here for a few days and you train them and you give them some stuff and everybody kind of goes, okay, you're on your own. Um, Nowadays, I think you can't just say, okay, you're on your own. You've got to keep making sure that person feels valued, um, that they feel like they fit, um, that they're getting, you know, I ask questions like, are someone showing you what you need to be shown in your opinion, not my opinion, but theirs? Are you getting, you know, if you need pencils, let's go get some for you. If you need a different computer, tell me what you need. Are you used to working a different way? Is there a software system that you know that we don't know that we should take a look at? Um, again, it's not an open checkbook, but uh, these employees are extraordinarily valuable today. Um, and I think it's very competitive. And I want to make sure they feel like this is home because all of us spend, you guys, just like you guys do, you got, I don't know how many times you got talk to each other in a week, but I can promise you it's more than either one of your spouses. But, you know, we're here hours and hours a day and, and weeks at a time. So you want to make sure that this feels like you're home away from home. 
Bill, I love how you talked about that kind of inverted triangle, right, with you at the bottom and then the, the team at the top. And one other thing that you mentioned uh, before we started recording that I thought was really interesting is you talked about managing distractions. And I think that's very different now, obviously, with social media and all the different um things that are coming at us all the time. So kind of maybe going a little deeper into that with the employees is how do you manage those distractions? How do you help them manage the distractions um, in their in their daily work life? Well, let's do one of the hard ones because I don't know the answer yet. And I talk about it openly with staff and and um, they have their opinions. And, and so we discuss it. But the, the very popular, most under, not understood by people like my generation, working from home. Uh, that is the oddest collection of words I've ever heard anyone say. Uh, working from home, I, you know, I did, if I look back over years, I, I can't imagine that those words ever fit together in anything I've ever ever experienced. But today, it's a thing, right? So people do that, and and I get it. But we're a small company; we're less than thirty full-time people. We get up to about sixty with with part-timers in camp. But to me. Uh, working from home is not the same as working at the office. And when someone tells me it's the same, I'm like, yeah, maybe, but not really, because there is value to having the same people under a roof. It's value to having all of the brain power in this building at one time. If I need something done, I can just walk down the hall and grab different people and say, let's talk about this issue. Let's figure out, um, we're gonna have a lot of rain here in a couple of days here in South Florida with our first tropical storm of the season. Uh, bless you, Josh. And then, and we're going to go through that. And so, when that starts, we have to think about what what programs are going to be impacted, and what can we do? Do we have a tour? Do we have a donor we need to take care of? Um, all that stuff has to happen in real time. And when you're at home, now you got to get on the computer and see if they're busy, see if they're answering the phone, see if they're available, uh, go on Teams and see if you can communicate with them. Uh, boy, that seems like it's a hard way to function, as opposed to being more flexible in the workplace, right? So the downside of that is you can't say to them, you've got to be here eight hours a day, come in, punch your clock, you have an hour for lunch and I'm going to watch every minute of that. And at, at five o'clock, you better still be working or and then you can go home. You have to be able to work with them where they are. So I've got some young mothers here. I have, a, I have a over well over 50% of my staff is female. Several of them are childbearing years. We've had a couple of babies born uh, just in recent times. So they have different responsibilities. Somebody's got to take the child to the doctor to get a checkup. So what do you do? What you do is you make allowances for that and you try not to keep score, but you're just aware of what you need to do for that person. And as long as they're giving that effort that you need to get that job done, um, which is hard to do, uh, I think it'll work. So when we went through the pandemic, we closed here twice. We were closed for more days than for Hurricane Andrew through the pandemic. Crazy when you think about that. Everybody remembers Hurricane Andrew. The, the pandemic was worse. We opened and we got going and then we closed again. And the a difficulty in communicating that you're back open is so much harder than communicating that you're closed. Every news media picks up your clothes. Nobody tells you you're back open. So you have to go back out there, remind everybody you're back in business. And thank God for our members. They came back in droves and they're, they're the heroes. But, but you have to manage your staff. And so what about June of the of the second round of this thing? I said, okay, that's it. We're coming back to work. I want everybody in the office. We'll separate you. We'll put you in separate offices. We'll cover your your door and this clean. Um, but you got to come to work uh, because that's where we do our job. Uh, we don't sell memberships at home. We sell them here at the at the front. Uh, we take donors on tours. We we do things here. So the goal is to um, 
to capitalize on that, but to alter your, your support of your staff so they can do what they need to do. Graduations are coming up. I got staff going to different graduations, but I'm not worried about that. They will, they'll get their things they need to get done done as long as I meet them. So it's not just the employee anymore. It's the employee, it's their family, it's their spouse, it's their, here in South Florida, we have extended families, we have large families. So if they have a, a relative somewhere that's having a, some special party that they've got to go to, you just have to make allowances for that. Um, and I found out when you do that, um, they appreciate it and, and they don't mind coming to the office. And so I think, so, you know, down the road, maybe that'll be visited a different way. I'm not a policy guy, so it's a little frustrating sometimes for staff, which write a policy for working from home. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to think about that. But I haven't written one um, and it's work. So you just have to approach it in, in the way that works for this business. I don't suggest that this works for all of or any of your clients that you have, but it works for us here. And I think you have to find the special sauce that works for you and just use that like crazy and then be mindful to watch that culture because it'll shift over time. And when it does, make adjustments and then keep going down the road and, and see what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bill, this has been uh, fantastic. I feel like we blinked and we are now uh, here towards the end of our time together. But as we start to wind this down here, if people want to learn more about Zoo Miami, Zoo Miami Foundation, or get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? Uh, zoomami.org is our website. So you can go there and there's a bunch of stuff there, including uh, I'm, I'm on there all over the place. So it's easy to find me. Uh, my email is bmore, M-O-O-R-E at zoomiami.org. So I'm easy to get there that way. Um, and then, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. If somebody wants to look me up there, I get this. I always fascinated with LinkedIn because you go on there and you get these people you've never heard of from different countries. And uh, I respond to everybody. If it's somebody that I don't, I, you know, I, if it's a commercial person, I'll say to them, like, hey, Josh, thank you very much for your outreach, but I really don't use your product ever, but I'm just going to letting you know. So we're not going to connect because it doesn't make sense for you or me, but, you know, life's good. But, um, but yeah, go out to our foundation and look under that. There's conservation papers there that the, the, the guys at the PhDs over at the zoo that are really, really smart about studying different things in conservation. They have papers listed. Our annual reports are out there. Our 990s there. Our full audits out there. We're a four-star charity navigated, you know, rated organization. We have a perfect score this past year of 100, second time we've had it. I'm very proud of our board and very proud of our staff for making that possible. Um, we all get it, but to me, if you're going to donate money to us uh, or you're going to help support the zoo in any way, I want you to know that what percentage of that is going to go directly to help versus that overhead. Yeah, we have overhead. I've got a salary like everybody else, but we want to be transparent in how we do that so that donors feel comfortable that they're their hard-earned money uh, or that they may want to support something is, is being used properly. Excellent. Well, Bill, uh, like Josh said, this has been a, a, a great interview. It's just kind of flown right by. It's always great catching up with you, and I look forward to catching up with you even more uh, at the Florida Attractions Association Conference coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you so much for your time. And for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.